Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now. Here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about Saladin, the famous Kurdish leader who conquered much of the Muslim world during the, the 12th century. Uh, he was the first person to become the sultan of both Egypt and Syria. And then beyond that, he expanded his uh, sultanate well beyond those uh, those areas. He united a huge amount of land under his personal control. And on top of this, he didn't just fight other Muslims. Oh, no, no, no. This bloke also had to deal with crusading Christians throughout his entire career. I mean, he spent most of his lifetime either on or planning to be on battlefields. After the First Crusade in the 11th century, much of the Levant was under Christian control. But I'll tell you this, once Saladin had, has, had, had, you know, had his say with it, much less of it was because he drove the Crusaders out of the Holy Land. He won huge battles like the Battle of Hattin, uh, where an army of thousands upon thousands of Christians was essentially wiped out. He also retook Jerusalem for the, for the, for the Muslims, and he managed to hold on to it even in the face of another full-scale crusade, the Third Crusade. And all the while, throughout this entire time, Saladin also built for himself a reputation of chivalry and justice and generosity. And, well, look, you know, I'm not going to say kindness because the bloke you know, killed countless scores of people and executed some of his prisoners himself, um, but he wasn't cruel. Um, and his, you know, his steadfast and unflinching courage in the face of his many enemies, it never veered into, into brutish ruthlessness, except for when he executed almost 2,000 prisoners in cold blood. But hey, we'll, we'll get to that, don't you worry. Anyway, today, Saladin is uh, Saladin, he's widely admired by history, and, and, you know, and even then, back then, during his lifetime, people thought very highly of him, Muslims, obviously, because you know, he was going about bringing the fire and the sword to the Western heathens, but even the Christians against whom he fought, they had a grudging respect for the bloke, again, due to his chivalry and the perception that he was a, he was a just and worthy adversary. Anyway, we'll get across all of this and more today as we tell the story of Saladin. And before we start, I just want to, I want to offer a, 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 a big thank you here to alert listeners Kelsey and Adam, both of whom sent in suggestions to cover Saladin. So here we are. Thanks very much, you two. But let's get underway. Let's get underway here and we'll talk about the mighty conquering sultan, the founder of the Ayyubid dynasty, Saladin. Here we go. So we're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1137 to a place called Tikrit, just north of Baghdad in modern day Iraq. And it was there that 
Al-Malik al-Nasir Salah al-Danya wal-Din Abul Muzaffar Yusuf ibn Ayyub ibn Shadi al-Kurdi was born. And uh, let me say this, it is a good bloody thing that he became known to history as Saladin, because otherwise this episode would be 100 years long. Anyway, the name Saladin, it's not actually a, a, a name, it's an, it's an honorific more than, more than anything else. During his lifetime, he went by the, his personal name, Yusuf, right? While uh, Salah ad-Din, which is where Saladin comes from, the, the term Salah ad-Din, which, uh, which was a cognomen. It meant righteousness of the faith, kind of like how Caligula, episode 33, get across it, uh, was a cognomen that, that well... A little less cool, this one. Caligula meant little boots, so, you know, Saladin's was, uh, you know, a little more hardcore. Anyway, he was born into a Kurdish family that had assimilated into the Arabic world, and we don't have a huge amount of information about his early years. His family were exiled from Tikrit shortly after he was born. Uh, on some accounts say that it was actually the day that he was born that his family were forced out. Um, and after this, his family relocated to Mosul, where his dad, who was a soldier, continued his military career, eventually working as a commander for an emir named Nur ad-Din. And at some point, Saladin relocated with his family to Damascus. And he, for the rest of his life, maintained a very strong connection and affinity with the city, that, uh, the city of Damascus. He, he retained this sort of uh, love affair with Damascus for his, ent- his entire life. And he was very well educated as he grew up. He learned everything from maths to sciences to languages. He could speak Kurdish and Arabic and, and Persian and Turkish. But he also received a military education as well, and apparently was a very capable soldier and particularly a talented horseman. And so he began his military career when he was sent off on campaign in the 1160s. He travelled off to Egypt with his uncle, a bloke whose name was Assad al-Din Shakur. And uh, Shakur had been deployed to Egypt on the orders of uh, Emir Nur ad-Din, this uh, this bloke who was uh, in charge back in Damascus. Now, Nur ad-Din... He had agreed to help the Fatimid vizier in, in Egypt, a bloke whose name was Shawar, because Shawar had been forced out of his position. He'd been usurped, essentially, by a political rival. Egypt was part of the Fatimid Caliphate, right? And the Fatimid Caliphate was in the process of collapsing. Uh, uh, in name, a caliph named Al-Adid was in charge, but he was... I mean, he was a teenager, right? He was a teenager that was overseeing a disintegrating realm, and the real power in Egypt rested with the vizier, and this bloke, Shawar, as I say, had had this position nicked off him. He was keen to get it back, and so Nur ad-Din was jumping in, sending his army in order to help him. And this is when Saladin went off with his uncle Shakur at the age of 26, headed off to Egypt, and uh, and this force that had been sent by Nur ad-Din from Damascus helped to restore Shawar to the position of vizier. However, it wasn't as simple as that because once this job had been done, Shakur, he he smelled a bit of an opportunity here and he refused to withdraw his troops once the fighting was over. And so Shawar was basically back at square one because now Shakur is here with a big army also contesting the vizier, the viziership, the vizierhood, the vizierdom of Egypt. And so what does Shuar do? Well, calling in allies from a, you know, from a distant land didn't really work too well for him in terms of becoming the vizier of Egypt again. So he goes ahead and calls in different allies from a different part of the world, ones that you would be very surprised to learn were Christian crusaders. Shawar allied himself with invading crusaders, taking the fight to Shakur and trying to, you know, kick him out of Egypt and... Shakur, to put it very simply, with Saladin commanding one of his divisions, wiped the floor with them, wiped the floor with Shawar, with his crusading allies, and then decided, hey, in for a penny, in for a pound. And so throughout the rest of the 1160s, Saladin and his uncle just conquered Egypt, just conquered it, took it back for him, took it for himself, beat back Shawar, the crusaders, anyone else who stood in their way. And by 1169, this conquest of Egypt was complete. 
And with Shakur dying that very same year, as Egypt had fallen into his hands, Saladin was now in a prime position to take power in Egypt as the vizier. The Fatimid Caliph, this bloke that I mentioned before, the teenager, Al-Adid, he was struggling to hold together his realm. And so he decided to make this, make young Saladin the vizier of Egypt anyway, not to mention the fact that he'd you know, conquered the place, but he thought, well... He's young, he's inexperienced, he'll be easy to influence and control, and also, you know, he's in, he's in charge of Egypt as it is anyway, and I'm sick of fighting over there as it is. Um, and it turns out that uh, Aladdin was kind of wrong about some of the assumptions he made about the young Saladin, because Saladin took to his new and, you know, powerful position as the vizier of Egypt very readily indeed. He dealt with everything from assassination attempts to rebellious uprisings to bloody crusaders again in defending his position as vizier of Egypt under Al-Adid. Um, but the, the, the complicated thing here for Saladin was, even though he's in a, you know, in, a, in a great spot looking after Egypt in the name of Al-Adid, he also technically owes loyalty back to his old boss, Nur ad-Din, back in Damascus, who obviously, you know, he had, who had been the thing that had spurred Saladin onto this position by deploying him to Egypt in the first place, and then helped him out even further when Crusaders came and attempted to uh, to take the fight to Saladin in Egypt in 1169. Nur ad-Din backed him up again, and so he's kind of stuck between his two bosses here. He's got Al-Adid as a, as you know the leader of the Fatimids, and then he's got his old boss Nur ad-Din back in Damascus, and he Saladin is having to walk a, a very tricky balance between these two powers that both have a claim on his on his loyalty, although it doesn't really come to a head for a time. And while Saladin is in this position in Egypt, he works very hard to build up a significant power base in Egypt. He installs family members and other loyal followers into positions of power in his administration and continue to campaign against invading crusaders to firm up and shore up his control of this region. But as we head into the 1170s, the political landscape shifted once again, because in 1171, Al-Adid, right, the, the teenage uh, caliph, he died of a mysterious illness. At, well, he wasn't teenage, but he was 20 years old, so just, he, just out of his teenage years, and he just kills over and dies. I mean, surely nothing suspicious going on there. You know, the leader of this fractious realm that's on the, on the, on the brink of falling apart, and, and its leader dies of this mysterious illness at the age of 20. Certainly nothing to look into there. But with his death, the Fatimid Caliphate, if effectively, it fell apart once and for all. There were still people who were attempting to restore or renew it, whatever else, bring it back, but that was basically the end of the Fatimids. And so Saladin now, after seeing off, you know, continuing to see off these efforts from the, the remnants of the Fatimids to restore their dynasty to power, and also continuing to see off attempts by European crusaders to capture Egypt, they are like bloody cockroaches, mate, they just won't die. But Saladin, at this point, entered into a stage of consolidating his power as an effectively independent ruler. Because as time went on, Saladin grew further apart from his old boss back in Damascus, Nur ad-Din. For instance, when Nur ad-Din called for uh, Saladin to assist him in an attack on Crusader castles near Jerusalem, Saladin refused. He didn't answer the call. Instead, he stayed in Cairo to bolster his defences against Crusaders there. And this might have ended up being a bit of a problem for Saladin had it gone on much longer, because in 1174, it actually looked like Nur ad-Din was putting together an army large enough to invade Egypt and bring Saladin's realm back under his control, not, not back under his control, but into his control once and for all here. But then... A stroke of luck for our mate Saladin, because in 1174, when Nur ad-Din was perhaps, you know, preparing for this invasion, 
Nuruddin went ahead and died, just like that. A very simple solution to this power struggle that Saladin was uh, was faced with there. So, with his death, right, the 11-year-old son of Nuruddin inherited his realm, and so it began to crumble as well. Political infighting, people looking for an opportunity to increase their power, people like, for example, Saladin, right? This, uh, the death of Nuruddin granted Saladin total politi- political independence as the Sultan of Egypt, right? But it also put a somewhat tricky decision in front of him. Because Nur ad-Din's death, it left Damascus and, and wider parts of Syria ripe for annexation, given that they were now, now ruled by a child. However, for Saladin to march into Syria and annex it, would, not only would very strongly go against Islamic customs, as it had been ruled by you know, his former lord, it also would leave Egypt, which was still suffering, you know, continuing crusader incursions, it would leave Egypt some, somewhat un- undefended. So what does he do here? Does he try to head back to his beloved Damascus? Does he try to take it off the hands of this little 11-year-old kid and go against Islamic custom and leave Cairo undefended? Or does he stay in Egypt, consolidate his, uh, in, in his position there, and remain in a, in a land that is ultimately uh, foreign to him? So, well... Perhaps, you know, happily for Saladin, he never really seemed like the the indecisive type, but happily for Saladin, he actually didn't have to make this decision. It was made for him because ultimately, when the emir of a different city, Aleppo, took guardianship of Nur ad-Din's son, the emir of Damascus actually invited Saladin to come to the city, take control and go after the blokes in Aleppo. So Saladin was now being invited into Syria. He wasn't going against the wishes of his former lord. This emir was asking him to come and take control of the city, and he did this. Obviously, we we talked about how much he loved Damascus. He didn't take much persuading to march on in there, and peacefully, essentially, annexed and took control of Damascus. Now, because he had seized such an important city in Syria, right? This effectively gave him control of Syria. And it's around this time that he began to style himself in 1174. It's, uh, it's around the time that he began to style himself the, the sultan of both Egypt and Syria, even though there were some parts of these, you know, of these regions that were still contested. Broadly speaking, Saladin is in control of quite a vast swath of land at this point. And, you know, Saladin these days is perhaps most famous for fighting Christian crusaders, but as I alluded to in the intro, he didn't mind feeding his Islamic brethren, the left and the right as well, because from 1174 and onwards, Saladin took the fight to his Muslim neighbours like you wouldn't believe. He went after the lands that surrounded his realm and slowly but sure, well, and not even really that slowly, I don't think, he expanded his territory bit by bit. It grew and grew through battles and sieges and continued campaigning. And of course, you know, he made more than a few enemies by doing this. Alert listeners will remember episode 138 when we talked about the Order of Assassins. You can go and, go and get across that and hear about the most high-profile target the Order ever went after. None other than Saladin himself, of course. You have to go back and listen to that episode to remind yourself exactly how those assassination attempts went. Uh, although, I mean, you can probably tell that they weren't successful as there's, you know, Still a fair bit of podcast left on this episode, so obviously they didn't kill him in their attempts in 1175, 1176. They did, however, provoke him into besieging their fortress in Masyaf, although Saladin broke off the siege early and didn't ever see it through. Again, details of all of that and more, episode 138, get across it. Anyway, despite Saladin going, you know, out and about, fighting with enemies, both Muslim and Christian, despite him crushing his enemies, seeing them driven before him, 
There was one city that didn't fall to his might during this period of campaigning, and that city was Aleppo. Aleppo managed to hold out against Saladin with Nur ad-Din's son safe behind its walls, and this was a bit of a blow to Saladin's ongoing legitimacy as the Sultan of Syria. He can claim to be the Sultan all he likes, but if, he, if he's still got this other bloke, this kid of the former Sultan, you know, the bloke who was in charge of uh, Syria beforehand, this bloke, is, this, this kid is still going around with the, with the claims that he's got to the title. And so Saladin has to do something about it. And he's a very cluey fella, our friend Saladin. He realises that other means can be found when the fire and the sword aren't sufficient. So to shore up his position, right, to shore up his position as the one and only Sultan of Syria, do you know what he did? He went out, he went out and married the widow of Nur ad-Din, a woman called Ismat, the mother of the kid trapped in Aleppo. He married Nur ad-Din's widow, and as Ismat was also descended from an old line of Syrian rulers, this marriage was a, it went a very long way in securing Saladin's position as the Sultan of Syria without too many people who were, you know, going to reasonably be able to dispute it. It was a very clever move from Saladin in strengthening his position as, by now, quite a powerful regional leader. This bloke controlled a lot of land and also could order a lot of men with sharp swords to defend it. And so his position was, was, was growing stronger by the day. And it, there was another factor as well that also strengthened Saladin's position as a leader here. His reputation. Saladin had built a reputation as an even-handed, magnanimous, and fair and just ruler. He was, and also helpfully, one who was very, very liberal with gifts and, and treasures. His armies were always exceptionally well paid, which is a great way to keep them on side. They were given free-handed access to plunder and loot whenever they campaigned. And on top of this, even those that he defeated and, and took prisoners, Saladin's prisoners of war were usually very well treated, and often when they were released, they were given provisions and money once a conflict was over. So they really, you know, the, he, he led very strongly into the no hard feelings approach, you know, showering people with money as he as he let them go. And, and, and it worked, but there was also something else, and probably the most significant thing that Saladin was doing at this time as he was going around and fighting other Muslims. There was, there was one thing that he was doing that really... Turned him from, you know, it, it meant that he wasn't perceived as, as a vicious, conquering tyrant, and instead he was seen as, as an inspirational, unifying figure, something, someone that people really wanted to get behind, even after he, you know, conquered the pants off of them. And it was this. While he was going about, as I say, conquering the pants off of all of these splintered Islamic lands, he gained a lot of popular support from people thanks to his promises to drive out the Christians in the nearby Crusader states. This was a promise that many Muslims were very, very ready to hear, something they were keen to see. And so it sort of, you know, it, it softened the blow of being brought into Saladin's realm when the bloke in charge of things was up there saying, well, you know, first it's you guys, but sooner, sooner or later I'm going to turn around and we're going to drive these Western infidels straight into the, into the Mediterranean Sea. This brought a lot of people on side, and it meant that his his uh, conquest of much of the uh, of, of the the you know Muslim controlled areas in and around the Holy Land it went down a lot smoother because people came on side and and supported him even after he had brought them into the fold, potentially you know against their will. So essentially, Saladin succeeded as a leader not just because of his military triumphs, and you know while he was campaigning, he was he was ruthless and he was determined. He waged war on anyone that he saw fit, but while doing this. He was never cruel or vindictive, and even in defeat, his enemies had to admit their grudging respect for him, 
and plenty of other Islamic leaders were keen on his plans to boot out the Crusaders. And as we move into the 1180s, Saladin, he continued to work on embiggening his sultanate, although, as I mentioned, he was beginning to set his sights higher than just his Islamic neighbours. He intended to follow through on the promises that he was making to them once he'd conquered them. He had unified much of the Muslim world in the eastern Mediterranean, and even a little way beyond, uh, bringing fractious Islamic realms together under his rule. In 1183, he finally conquered Aleppo, too. Two years later, his territory has expanded as far as Mosul in modern-day northern Iraq, so his hold on much of the Islamic world was pretty firm by this point. In the uh, mid-1180s, his borders were effectively secure in many areas, particularly after he signed a treaty with the Byzantine Empire against their mutual enemy, uh, the, the Seljuk Turks. And so this left Saladin in the mid-1180s, as I say, with a stable, secure border It allowed him to turn his attention instead to a new enemy without worrying about an attack from behind. And this new enemy, of course, was none other than the Crusader States, established in the wake of the First Crusade and the Christian capture of Jerusalem. As we've talked about, Saladin had campaigned against the Crusaders from the get-go all the way back in Egypt, and he'd made so many prom- plenty of promises about defeating them once and for all, sending them packing back to Europe. He had admittedly, you know, signed various truces and, and peace agreements with his European enemies when it had suited him. He was a pragmatist at heart. But these peace agreements hadn't often lasted very long, and you know he spent certainly spent more time stouching with the Crusader than he did being at peace with them. But now, in the back half of the 1180s, Saladin is finally eyeing off these these strongholds of Christian power, these Crusader states, which controlled not just Jerusalem but other areas like Tripoli and Antioch and Acre. The eastern coastline of the Mediterranean was crawling with Christians, or, or Franks, as they were known to the Islamic world, despite not all being French, French or English or German, it didn't matter. Christians were generally all referred to as Franks in that part of the world, much like, you know, to you, you may have heard the, the term uh, Saracen used today and was used back then as well. Saracen used to describe Muslims of, of, of the time of all types, uh, whether they were Arabic or, or Turkish or Kurdish or whatever else. And so Franks is, uh, it's sort of the opposite of that, you know, describing any any Western Christian, regardless of where they're from, because, you know, again, not all of them are French. Anyway, these Franks uh, in the Crusader States, they were in the middle of a succession crisis at this point. Saladin is going around, kicking goals with both feet, having a great time expanding his realm, securing its borders. And so he decides that the time has come. The Christian Crusader States are showing weakness. They're in the middle of the succession crisis. His realm has never been stronger so he decides to strike while the iron is hot, to take advantage of this infighting that's going on amongst the Christian Crusader states and to turf those bloody Western infidels straight into the Mediterranean Sea. But he needs to wait for an opportunity to actually kick off this conflict because in 1187, there was a truce in place between Saladin and the Crusader states, a truce that was most conveniently, you might say, broken by a Frankish noble named Raynaud of Châtillon. He raided one of Saladin's trading caravans, despite this truce being in place between Saladin and the Franks. And this proved to be a bad move, because Saladin was already looking for a reason to go after the Christians, and this, this well, torturous massacre of, uh, of, of you know, relatively peaceful Muslim merchants was just the excuse he needed to start, start swinging the sword about. He swore revenge for the breakage of the truce, mobilized against the Franks, and so Saladin marched with his troops towards Acre. He gathered between twenty and 
40,000 troops to take the fight to the Franks, an enormous army. And the current king of Jerusalem, a fellow whose name was Guy of Lusignan, right, an actual French Frank, he, in, in the midst of all of this political turmoil, had to scramble to try to rally his troops and uh, and mount some kind of defense against Saladin, meet him in battle. And let me tell you, it did not go too well for him at all. The Battle of Hattin was an unmitigated disaster for the Franks, who had assembled one of the biggest Christian armies ever seen in the Holy Land, over 18,000 troops. I mean, a lot, yeah, sure, a lot, but nowhere near as many as Saladin had put together. I mean, they were, despite having found essentially every last man, the Franks were still outnumbered. But that's not all. They were also very poorly supplied, particularly lacking water. It's July, it's the middle of summer in the desert, and the Franks are cutting about without water. It's not going to end well for them here, and Saladin and his army are only making it worse too. They know the Franks are short on water, and so Saladin deliberately positions himself between the enemy and an enormous lake. So Saladin and his troops, they've got all the water they can drink, no worries at all. Practically drowning they are, they're bringing up that much water from the lake. Meanwhile, the Franks have drunk two springs dry and the troops are absolutely parched with thirst. They are having a terrible time. And Saladin only makes it worse for them. He ordered his men to set dry grass on fire to create a, bu- uh, create a bunch of smoke, which then blew over to the Franks and choked their already dry lungs, making them suffer even more. Absolutely no chill with old mate Saladin. There are also reports, although these haven't been particularly you know, well confirmed or documented here, there are reports of him ordering some of his men to ride into full view of the Franks and then tip water out onto the ground, taunting and mocking them for their lack of, uh, of water. This may not be true. It might just be a fanciful invention. A Saladin story has been romanticized a fair bit over the years. But whatever the case, Saladin and his troops are in great nick. The Franks are in a terrible spot. And so it won't surprise you to learn that Saladin absolutely crushed them. The entire Christian army was annihilated. They were weak with thirst and fatigue. They scarcely put up any resistance and Saladin's army cut them down where they stood. It was hardly even a battle, really. Those who weren't killed were taken prisoner. And amongst these prisoners was none other than King Guy of Lusignan himself. Exhausted, hot and parched, Guy was brought into Saladin's tent where Saladin offered him an iced sherbet, or maybe it was iced rose water, whatever, I mean, whatever the case, what a guy, such a power move by Saladin there. He let most of the uh, the noble prisoners go after, of course, receiving a uh, hefty ransom for many of them, although there was one noble he didn't release at any price, and that was Reynaud of Chatillon, the bloke who had broken the truce in the first place. Saladin wouldn't release him, no. Saladin had him executed, with some stories saying that he did it himself, chopping Reynold's head off with a sword. Apparently, Saladin had sworn to kill Reynold himself after hearing how the bloke had attacked his caravans and tortured the people in them again. Might have be true, but you can't deny Saladin did not muck about whatever the case. Anyway, after the Battle of Hattin, with the military capacity of the Franks more or less completely undone, Saladin again moved to make hay while the sun shone here. Guy of Lusignan had mobilized more or less his entire force against Saladin, and this had left his capital, Jerusalem, essentially undefended. 
Now, Jerusalem wasn't a particularly important strategic objective here uh, in terms of its military utility or anything else like that. But symbolically, ideologically, as the holy city for, of course, not just Christianity, but, but Islam and, of course, Judaism, it was an enormously important target, again, just from a pure, pure ideological perspective. And Saladin realized this, and so as a result, he decided to go after the city while it was in this state of, of being, you know, as I say, essentially undefended. Saladin besieged the city, and it wasn't long before it fell. And this was a turning point in the history of the region, of course, because of how important Jerusalem was symbolically to, to both Christians and Muslims during this period of the Crusades. The city fell on the 2nd of October, 1187. And its Christian inhabitants were extremely worried about what was going to come next. And why, you might wonder. This is just bog-standard siege warfare of the medieval period. What's the worst that could happen? Well, in 1099, we saw one of the, one of the worst things that can happen. When the First Crusade had seen Jerusalem fall to the Christians for the first time, they had perpetrated a mass slaughter of thousands and thousands of Muslims and Jews. And so the Christians that now lived in, uh, in Jerusalem at this point when Saladin uh, conquers it, they are worried that he is going to return the favour. Almost a century later, he's worried, they're worried that he is going to perpetrate a slaughter of his own. But he didn't. Christians in Jerusalem either had to pay a ransom to leave the city safely, or otherwise they were captured and sold into slavery. They weren't killed. And and while this sounds, you know, pretty bloody barbaric by our standards today, in comparison to what happened in Jerusalem in 1099, it, uh, I mean, it, it really did make Saladin look like a, a very magnanimous victor. Interestingly, however, it wasn't all Christians that were either ransomed off or, or captured and sold into slavery. Not all Christians, no. Eastern Christians were actually exempt from this. And, you, and you'll remember why. It was just two episodes ago we were talking about this the efforts of our mate Tamar of Georgia, who had a good relationship with, uh, with Saladin, she managed to talk him out of persecuting Eastern Christians, and so they were allowed to remain behind in Jerusalem under Saladin's rule, although the city began to look very different under, <laughs> under the leadership of our mate Saladin as he went about and converted every single Christian church into a different kind of building. Some of them were even made into stables for horses. Every single church except one, that is, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which stands even today. It's still there. Uh, I've, I've got to get around to telling you about the, uh, the immovable ladder at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre one time. One of these days, I'll, I'll get across that story. Anyway, the capture of Jerusalem from the Crusaders essentially meant that Saladin had made good on the promises that he'd made to drive the Western infidels from the Levant. Such an ideological victory was it for Saladin here that many Muslim leaders were going, bloody hell, he's done it. Look at this bloke. What a legend. Get around him. Can you believe it? But he wasn't finished. I mean, the Battle of Hattin had, had essentially destroyed the Christian presence in the, in the Holy Land in every meaningful way. And so Saladin was able, as time went on, to go around and pick up city after city, reclaim these areas that had been captured by the Crusader states and bring them back under Islamic control. And so his promise to drive the Christians from the Holy Land was one that he very much kept. By the time he was finished, the only area still under Christian control was Tyre. More or less every single other area along the coast ended up under his control. And of course, as you can imagine, Saladin's popularity and public support grew to an 
all-time high. People bloody loved this bloke. They, you know, he turfed out those damn Franks. What a legend he is. Get around him. And Saladin, ever the pragmatist, he used this wave of public approval as an opportunity to have not one, but two biographies written about him. And a very wise move, too. Probably went some way in contributing to the broadly positive view that history generally takes of him. Anyway, with most of the Holy Land now under his control, Saladin turned his attention from conquest to consolidation. With his coffers very full after his successful military campaigns, he poured money into things like schools and temples and gardens and other infrastructure projects to benefit his vast sultanate. He gave money away like it was going off. He sent it to his regional governors, many of whom were his family members, to spend on developing the lands that they ruled. And generally, life under Saladin between 1187 and 1189 was very prosperous indeed. As I say, very liberal with, uh, with the cash that he had. He had no interest in hoarding his wealth, to the point that he was actually criticised by some of his advisors for being too generous with the money he was giving away. But the reason that I mentioned the year 1189 is because, as you may know, that was when Saladin had to face the Christian response to the capture of Jerusalem. People in Europe weren't too bloody happy about the loss of Jerusalem, and so Pope Gregory III was frothing for another crusade. Powerful European kings were more than happy to oblige too, and, and they answered the call. King Frederick I Barbarossa of the Holy Roman Empire, King Philip II of France, and of course the famous King Richard I, the Lionheart of England. And in 1189, after raising another massive crusading army and the funds to pay for it with backbreaking taxes, the Franks were at it again. The Third Crusade saw tens and tens of thousands of Franks descend upon the Holy Land, as many as 70 thousand at the top end of estimates although it has to be said not all of them actually got there frederick barbarossa for instance he died en route and most of his army didn't continue on to join the english and the french but even so saladin had a job on his hands dealing with this new crusade and, and and the people that did make it all the way there and in defending his cities he had to manage long and arduous sieges that really turned the conflict into a huge war of attrition the siege of Acre, for instance it lasted until 1191 when it finally fell to the invading Franks. It wasn't a particularly pleasant scene after the Franks are victorious either. They executed almost 3,000 prisoners in full view of Saladin's army. Saladin responded by ordering the execution of over 1,500 Christian prisoners, and so the conflict was, was horribly brutal at this point. But despite this, this, uh, this crusader victory over Saladin in Acre, Saladin and his forces weren't greatly affected, and they continued to skirmish with the Crusaders as they moved south, hoping to attack Jerusalem. Obviously, that was the final goal of the Crusade here. And Saladin, he was, he was behaving in a very deliberate and calculated way in managing this campaign. He knew that any drawn-out conflict will naturally favour the defender. Saladin used this fact to his advantage. He played it very slowly and very carefully and tried to wear down the Crusaders in this, as I say, this war of attrition. He cops some flack for this. I have to say, you know, the people who were advising him and accompanying him during this, this war, there were many of them who thought he should have been more aggressive, taking the fight to the beleaguered crusaders as they besieged cities and the like, preventing them from even landing in Tyre at their beachhead. But with the fall of Acre, Saladin lost most of his navy and he had to be even more conservative now, pulling back and keeping the bulk of his army safe from a, uh, a full frontal attack from the crusading army here. But this did mean 
that he lost more battles and he lost more cities as he played a very careful and guarded campaign. The Crusaders captured the city of Jaffa and in Jaffa they planned an attack that would seek to retake Jerusalem. And Saladin's popularity at this point, it took a real beating. It looked like he was losing this war against the Crusaders. It looked like the Franks had the upper hand and were slowly turning the screws as they marched towards Jerusalem. But despite the criticism, despite the fact that he'd lost battles and cities, Saladin's long-term view of this conflict, it ultimately paid off. Because as I say, he knew that time was on his side. He knew that if he remained slow and calculating, if he avoided huge decisive battles, if he made sure that he ran down the clock, eventually the Crusaders would have to give up. Not only are they paying the upkeep of, of tens of thousands of soldiers, They've got political issues back in their own realms, back in France, back in England, that they can't stay away from forever. And so Saladin knew that the waiting game, the long game, was his best chance at a victory here. Well, I mean, most of the time anyway. In 1192, Saladin did mount a full-scale attack on Jaffa, on on the city that had been taken by the Crusaders, and he lost control of his men. Uh, It was a disastrous attack by Saladin here. His men were so enraged because of the massacre after Akka, of those uh, those prisons that I mentioned, they sought mindless and bloody revenge, and they lost all discipline. The attack was a total failure because of it. Uh, Saladin was so disappointed with his soldiers that he actually got in touch with the Christians. He told them to withdraw and defend themselves in the city while he tried to regain control of his men and pull them back. So things didn't go all that well for Saladin, it's fair to say, in the Third Crusade. After playing this long, slow waiting game, which really meant that his approval took a, a, a fair beating and then you know, losing a number of cities and also key battles like in Jaffa, the Third Crusade didn't go that it didn't go that well for him, but it also didn't go that badly because Saladin ultimately emerged. I'm not going to say victorious because I think that'd be a, a little a little generous to the bloke. But he look, he didn't lose Jerusalem. Things didn't go as badly as they could have done. Again, Jerusalem did not fall to the Franks. That is the main takeaway in 1192. The conflict just kind of stopped. The Christians had run out of steam, and with Saladin's defeat at Jaffa, he had also lost hope of reclaiming the cities and lands that he had lost so far. So technically, I suppose, yes, the Crusaders won, in the sense that they gained a lot of territory, they restored some of these Crusader states, but their failure to capture Jerusalem, it made it a bit of a hollow victory for them, because they didn't really realise the objective that they had gone on crusade for in the first place, and so both sides walked away from the Third Crusade feeling like, oh geez, that really... That really could have gone a bit better for us. Saladin's wait-and-see approach wasn't perfect, but it did allow him to weather the storm, keep a relatively intact sultanate once the fighting was over, with Jerusalem, the most important city in the Holy Land, still under his control. The peace agreement restored some of the old Crusader states. It guaranteed unarmed pilgrims unfettered access to all parts of the Holy Land. It saw the bulk of the Crusading armies return to Europe, and it enacted a three-year truce between the two sides. However, Saladin wouldn't live to see the end of this truce. In 1193, at the age of just 55 or maybe 56, Saladin perhaps sent to an early grave after a, after a lifetime of military campaigns, he died of an illness only a short period after the Crusaders turned and left for home. And he died, you might be interested to know, almost penniless. He had given away all of both his realm's wealth and his personal wealth during his time as a leader, to the point that there wasn't enough left to pay for his funeral. 
He was buried in a relatively modest mausoleum nest next to a mosque in Damascus. You can still go and visit it today. And it really does go to show that he gave everything to his realm and his people. His, his, his blood, his sweat, his tears, and ultimately his money as well. But unfortunately, after his death, his realm, it fell apart. It was divided between three of his sons who took Egypt, Aleppo, and Damascus respectively. And the Muslim world reverted to its fractious infighting. Saladin's dynasty, the Ayyubids, lived on through his sons, but never with the same level of unity and cohesion that it had had under its founder. And little wonder too, given the fact that Saladin was a truly great leader, a conqueror on the battlefield, a diplomat off the battlefield, generous to his subjects, unflinching before his foes. A man of his word, he followed through on the promise that he made to rid the Holy Land of Christians, even if they did, you know... Come back, can't win them all, can you? But his legacy today is reflective of his success as a leader. Even at the time, as I mentioned, he was respected by his hated enemies, respected for his chivalrous and and just nature. Saladin has remained a famous and, and highly regarded figure in both European and Middle Eastern history in the centuries that have passed since his death. His actions shaped the history of the region and regions beyond it as he took the fight to the Crusader states, restored Jerusalem to Muslim control, and rebuffed the advances of the Christians in the, in the Third Crusade. And all that after conquering and uniting much of the Muslim world as well. There's a reason that today Saladin is usually considered the most famous Kurd in history. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Saladin. Thanks for hanging out with me while we got across it. Uh, I do hope you enjoyed the episode. All the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way to close things out, of course. Halfhousehistory.net, you can find the website uh, and the contact form thereon to send through suggestions, just like Kelsey and Adam did for this one of this week's episode. And it's there you'll find links, of course, to uh, not only where you can subscribe to the show on Anchor or on uh, iTunes or on Spotify or whatever you like. Uh, also, of course, the merch shop. If you want to go and buy some half House History merch and swag, you can do it there. Or if you want to support me on Patreon, like so many listeners do, so many loyal listeners supporting me on Patreon. Thank you so much to them all. I've seen some pictures of the exclusive Patreon-only merch that has been sent out, and it looks absolutely terrific. I mean, I would still say that even if it looked garbage, because I'd like you to go and, uh, and sign up for Patreon. But happily... I'm not lying when I say that it looks fantastic. And if you're interested in grabbing some, you uh, you should certainly go ahead and support me on Patreon and uh, not just gain access to this to the merch, but also all the behind the scenes stuff. You get show notes, you get early access to episodes, you get uncut recordings of the episodes as well, in case you want to listen to all the burps and the farts and me making mistakes and all that sort of stuff as well. Half House History, oh sorry, patreon.com slash half House History if you want to get across that. And thank you to all the people who are supporting me there. In addition to thank you to all the people who are supporting me by just listening to the show. It's great to have you along. I'm looking forward to your company next week as we get across more Half House History. Until then, of course, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Reddit historian Technically Art, who asks... I mean, we've talked a lot about Jerusalem today, and Technically Art has a Jerusalem-related question asking, if all that remains of the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem is the Wailing Wall, why is it in the middle of the desert? Were there whales nearby prior to the days of the Roman Empire? (laughs) 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 